0: All right, well, today we are continuing our journey through the book of Revelation, the challenging and confusing and fascinating and ultimately, I believe, hope-giving book of Revelation. Last week, if you were here, hopefully you remember that we looked at the vision that John was given of God's throne. And we talked about how that vision... uh, proclaims two things. It reveals two things to us. One, God is the one who is, in truly, who is truly in charge. Uh, even though, uh, as we are on this earth, sometimes it may appear like God is not really in charge, the reality is that he is ultimately in power. And secondly, the throne room reveals that all creation is meant to worship God. And we talked about how what it means to worship God Specifically is really to celebrate God. It's to enjoy and appreciate His goodness and His glory. But what you might not have realized is that last week we actually didn't look at the complete vision of the throne of God. Uh, The vision continues on into chapter 5, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning. And there we learn more about who this God is who is truly in charge and truly on the throne and why he is so worthy of enjoyment and celebration and appreciation. But before we get into chapter 5, I want to remind us, uh, last week we started off by looking at three of my suggestions for how to understand and appreciate John's visions as much as possible. Uh, People have struggled to understand what John was talking about uh, in these visions, struggled to interpret the the symbols in them, and so there's three things that we can keep in mind that I think will really help us. So by way of quick review, uh, remember John's visions are often not meant to be understood as literal, physical representations of reality. Uh, These visions communicate truth, but they communicate truth through symbols, And, you know, the more that we can understand uh, about the first century world, both the Jewish culture of that time and the Roman culture of that time, uh, the more likely we will be to understand the significance of these symbols. It's kind of like, you know, if if, uh, somebody was having a vision of, you know, November 2016, and they said something like well i saw an elephant trample over a donkey you know you if you read that 2000 years later you might be like oh i'm envisioning this huge elephant walking on a donkey and you know what could that possibly mean and but you know if you live now you have a better sense of like oh yeah well we have these two political parties in america and you know an elephant is the republican party and the, the donkey is the democratic party so because of your cultural context those those symbols have meaning, right? So the more that we understand the cultural context that Revelation comes out of, the more likely we will be to be able to understand uh, the symbols that are in it. So it reveals truth symbolically. The second thing we need to keep in mind is that we really need to be humble when trying to interpret the symbols in these visions. We really need to be humble. We have to be careful not to claim that we're certain of things that we can't be certain of. You know, there are people who give their lives to studying, uh, you know, what the significance of these symbols might be. And a lot of them, the, sim- the, the meaning is very clear. Uh, today, we're gonna be talking about some symbols where the meaning is very clear. But some of them, we're less sure. And we just have to, we have to recognize that. And then finally, uh, the third tip I offered last week was we need to be careful not to miss the forest for the trees. Which means we have to be careful not to be, get so fixated on the details that we don't understand, that we don't appreciate the big picture of what the vision is telling us. Okay? Make sense? All right, let's get into this. So, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. Let's say a quick prayer. Lord Jesus... I pray that as we read these words, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to understand, and not just to understand, Lord, but to be moved. I pray that you would illuminate not just our hearts, not just our minds, but our hearts as well, Lord. And I pray that we would be encouraged this morning by the beauty of what we find here. In Jesus' name, amen. because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, (coughs) He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So, John sees the one sitting on the throne, God the Father, holding a scroll, which is sealed with seven seals. And an angel asked, Is anyone worthy to open this scroll and break the seals? And no one is worthy, so John weeps. Now, what is this all about? Well, here's one way of thinking about this. What we've been witnessing around the throne room is a worship service of sorts, right? Everybody's singing to God, there's incense. Uh, So this is like a worship service, and what typically happens at a certain point in a worship service, especially in those days, is someone would bring out a scroll with the scriptures on it to be read from, right? But in this case... The scriptures are sealed. They can't be opened. Now, what might the significance of sealed scriptures be? I have two possibilities to suggest, and I think that both of these could be intended simultaneously. These are not mutually exclusive. So the first possibility is the sealed scriptures might represent inability to understand the scriptures. Uh, many times in the scriptures, God speaks, but people can't grasp the meaning. In fact, there's a, there's a place in Isaiah where Isaiah talks about having a vision and prophesying that vision, and he says, this vision might as well be sealed up, because you guys are too blinded by your sin to actually understand and comprehend what's being said, okay? Okay. Um, Another example from scripture, uh, in the book of Acts, there's a story about an Ethiopian who's traveling, and as he's traveling, he's reading the book of Isaiah. And uh, Philip, who's one of the leaders in the early church, he overhears the Ethiopian reading Isaiah, and he asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, how can I, unless somebody explains it to me? And so then Philip explains how this passage in Isaiah foretells the coming of Jesus and what Jesus has just accomplished through the cross. And then in that moment, Philip's, uh, the Ethiopian's eyes are open. You could, so you could say in a metaphorical sense in that incident, the scroll has been unsealed right for this Ethiopian uh, man, and he actually ends up uh, being baptized right then and there. So that's one possibility. Uh, of what's going on here, of the meaning of the sealed scroll. It represents this inability to understand the scriptures. And another possibility is that it represents the fulfillment of the scriptures. You know, throughout the scriptures, God has made promises, promises to rescue and redeem the world, uh, promises to destroy evil. And John hadn't seen those promises fully fulfilled yet. You know, we're still waiting to see those promises fully fulfilled. And so, the unsealing of the scroll may represent the fulfillment of those promises. So, when the angel asks, who is worthy to open the scroll and, and break the seals, I hear something like, who is worthy to unlock the meaning of scripture and to fulfill its promises? Who is worthy to unlock the meaning of Scripture and fulfill its promises? Who is worthy of enlightening us? Who is worthy of setting things right with the world? Who is worthy of vanquishing evil and ushering in the kingdom of God? And and John weeps because he knows no one. No one is worthy of these things. Everybody is sinful. Everybody is limited in their knowledge. Everyone is blinded to certain truths, including him. But, hold on. There is one. There is one human being who is worthy. Because he's not just a human being, right? He is divine, and that, of course, is Jesus. And he's described here as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and those were titles for the Messiah. Okay, the Messiah was this long-awaited, long-prophesied Jewish king who was supposed to come and set things right with the world. And I want us to notice specifically the symbol of the lion. We, we sang uh, that opening song this morning, The Lion and the Lamb. That was, that was very intentional because that's what we're focusing on, focusing on this morning. The lion. What does the lion represent? The lion is a symbol of power. The lion was thought of as the king of the animals. Uh, still is today, right? That's why Disney made the Lion King, not the Zebra King. Right? Lion King just feels right. Um, and so the Messiah was thought of as a lion, as, as the king. Uh, he was expected to be a powerful, conquering, uh, military leader, a lion. And what we're told here in this vision is that this Lion King, this this long-awaited Messiah, has already triumphed. And therefore, he is able to open the scroll and its seals. He is able to unlock the meaning of Scripture, and he is able to bring the Scriptures to fulfillment. He is able to set things in motion for the ushering in of the kingdom of God and the eradication of the kingdom of darkness. But he hasn't done that in the way that people expected. Because this lion who has triumphed is a very strange-looking lion, isn't he? Uh, One of the elders announces, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. In other words, look, here he is, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when John looks at the lion, what does he see? He sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. Very strange-looking lion, right? This lion looks like one of the most vulnerable of animals. And not only that, he looks like a slain, vulnerable animal. Now, this is a very powerful image. And if there's one thing that I want us to take away from this morning, it's the significance of this image, the significance of Jesus being a lion who looks like a lamb. Why does the lion look like a slain lamb? Well, it's because when Jesus, the Messiah, came, he didn't triumph over the ev- over evil in the way uh, that anyone expected. Everyone expected him to triumph over his enemies like a lion, right? Through force and power and military might. But how did he triumph? He triumphed by allowing himself to be crucified. He triumphed by becoming vulnerable, right? He didn't triumph by killing his enemies. He actually triumphed by letting his enemies kill him. He didn't triumph by attacking his enemies, but by loving his enemies. And he didn't triumph by taking his enemies' blood, but by giving his blood. Now, make no mistake about it, okay? Jesus is a lion, He's not a wimp. Jesus is victorious, Jesus conquers, Jesus wins. But the way that he wins, the way that he conquers, looks like a lamb. By the world's standards, it looks like weakness. But the truth is, it's not weakness at all. Love, sacrifice, generosity, humility, These are all things that we see displayed through Jesus on the cross, through the slain lamb. And that is real power. That's real strength. I I just think there's something so mind-blowing and beautifully ironic about what we see in this vision, right? Because here we have this symbol of weakness and vulnerability, this bleeding lamb, and yet this lamb is described as having seven horns and seven eyes which is basically a way of saying he has all power and he's all-knowing. Horns in those days represented authority, okay? And this weak and vulnerable lamb is sitting on the throne of God and is being worshipped, which means that this weak and vulnerable lamb is being identified as the God of the universe. I mean, if you're sitting on the throne of God and you're receiving worship from all creatures in heaven and on earth, then you better be God, right? Otherwise, you need to learn your place. (laughs) This weak and vulnerable lamb is being worshipped and recognized as the God of the universe, and we're told that every creature in heaven and on earth is worshipping him, and we're told that the number of angels that's worshipping him is 10,000 times upon 10,000, which is very significant because... In those days, in the Greek language, 10,000 was the highest unit that they had a word for. So if you say 10,000 times 10,000, then you're basically saying as a countless number, as many as you can imagine, that's what's worshipping this lamb uh, around the throne. At the center of this countless number of worshipping angels and elders and living creatures is this slain lamb this symbol of weakness and vulnerability and sacrifice. There's a beautiful irony to that. And what that means is that at the center of the throne of God, this seat of greatest power and authority is sacrificial love. Let that sink in. The 24 elders and the living creatures sing a song of praise to Jesus and say, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. Right? In other words, you are worthy because you are a lion who looks like a lamb. You are worthy because you are the embodiment of sacrificial love. You are worthy because you gave yourself to restore a broken creation. You are worthy because you radically humbled yourself to rescue us. Now, here's some practical application for us. Remember, Jesus is the only one who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And I've said what that means is that Jesus is the only one who can unlock the meaning of the scriptures, and who can fulfill the scriptures. So let's talk a little about practical application of the first one, unlocking the meaning of the scriptures. Uh, I think that if we're honest, we can all admit that the Bible can be a difficult book to understand, right? It can be very challenging sometimes. And over the history of the church, Some people have interpreted it very well, and some people have not. And here's what we have to remember. If the scroll of the Bible and its meaning is going to be opened to us, unsealed for us, we have to read it with Jesus in mind. We have to let Jesus guide our understanding of every part of it. You know, and and practically speaking, that means when we're reading something from the Old Testament. We should be asking questions like, well, how does Jesus relate to this? You know, how does this point to our need for a Savior? Or how does Jesus fulfill what this is talking about? How does this foreshadow Jesus? Those are very important questions to ask. There's a verse in the book of Colossians that says, in Jesus, all things hold together. It's talking about how Jesus is before all things, he's the creator of all things, and in him, all things hold together. And I find that that phrase applies to us reading the Bible as well. You know, if you come to the Bible, just kind of read it at random, and you don't see Jesus as the big idea of the story, and sort of the... Uh, the interpretive key to understanding the whole thing, you're going to be lost. And it's not going to feel like a cohesive story. But if you, if you allow Jesus to be the big idea, the center of the whole thing, then it all fits. The puzzle pieces start coming together. So we've got to read the Bible with G- seeing Jesus as the center of the story. Let's talk about the second thing. Jesus is the only one who can fulfill the scriptures. And what this means, of course, is that Jesus is the only one who can set things right with the world. He is the only one who can usher in the kingdom of God and destroy evil once and for all. And what Jesus has demonstrated for us is that his way of fulfilling the scriptures and ushering in the kingdom of God is sacrificial love, it's lamb like vulnerability. It's the cross. That's how he conquers. The way that he is a lion is by being a lamb. The way that he wins is that sacrificial love. That is how he has triumphed. Now, here's the practical application for us. Jesus has called us, his church, to be like his hands and feet in the world, right? To be his witnesses, to follow his example, and to participate in what he's doing to bring the kingdom of God. And that is an extremely difficult calling uh, because it means living out the way of the Lamb. And what does that mean for us? Well, this is no means an exhaustive list, but here's some possibilities. It means making ourselves vulnerable, it means being okay with being perceived as weak sometimes, it means choosing to love our enemies. It means turning from violence. It means loving sacrificially. It means being generous. Not holding real tightly to everything we have, but like Jesus, being willing to let go of rights and privileges in order to bless others. And that is really, really hard. That's so hard. I would say, you have to be a very determined lion to live like a lamb. But that is how the kingdom of God grows. That's how Jesus gets the job done. That's how Jesus fulfills the plan. You know, sometimes churches will host workshops on how to evangelize. And, uh, you know, they'll have seminars and tips on how to share the faith. And I think that's a great thing. We're probably... Uh, do do something like that here at St. Paul's. But it's important to remember that the best witness for Jesus is a life that resembles a slain lamb. And that's not really something that you can do just by memorizing, you know, the right presentation of the gospel. It's something that's lived out. And I mean, it makes me a little uncomfortable to say that, that the best witness is a life that resembles a slain lamb, but I think that's the truth. The best witness for Jesus is a life that demonstrates love and generosity, even when that comes at a cost. Right? It's a life that demonstrates patience and humility and gentleness and respect, even with those that we don't like. You know, if we're not careful, it's easy for us to start to think that the best way to get the job done, the best way to build the kingdom of God and to grow the church and make converts and disciples is to become like a lion, right? The way of the lion tries to bring the kingdom through things like winning arguments and yelling at people. Um, It expects to win through things like celebrity, right? Like... um, you know, pastors having the most fashionable clothes, $2,000 sneakers. You know, that will win over the, the people. Um, the Way of the Lion expects to win by putting on the most entertaining show at church, you know, with the most smoke and lights and that sort of thing, and the one that costs the most money. And The Way of the Lion is also quick to use violence, either to intimidate those who don't follow God, or to destroy them. But the reality is that the way of the lion just doesn't work for building the kingdom of God. It doesn't bring people to genuine faith. It doesn't grow disciples. It it doesn't build healthy churches or transform communities. And the church's temptation in every generation is to believe it's the way of the lion that's going to get the job done even though that's not the way that Jesus modeled, and even though it's the Lamb that's on the throne. There's always this temptation, because, you know, we want to be seen as powerful and strong and cool and fashionable and smart. I, want, I like when people see me that way. Who doesn't want to be seen that way? But the way of the Lamb, the way of sacrifice and love and humility, that's what unseals the scroll. That's what opens it up. That's what reveals the character of the one who's on the throne. That's what demonstrates the heart of God. And and that's what the Holy Spirit loves to move through, to transform lives and, and communities. So my prayer this morning is that God would give us the grace to be slain lambs for his glory. And that we would join the chorus of praise for the lamb on the throne. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that rather than uh, destroying evil through the way of the lion, that you did it through the way of the lamb, through weakness and vulnerability and love. Because Lord, if you had done it through the way of the lion, who who among us could have stood? who among us us, uh, wouldn't have been destroyed, Lord. We are all sinners. We are all in need of your grace. We thank you, Lord, for fulfilling your plan through sacrificial love, through giving of yourself. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would would so fill our hearts with an awareness of what you've done and your love and that the lamb is on the throne, uh, that we too would, would embody that same kind of character in how we witness to the world.